Please be seated. It's good to be with you this morning, and uh, we are going back to school this week. I know that Gene took DT uh, to, to Kent State uh, this week, and um, it's fitting, I think, that as we look at today's passage, we also will look a little bit at some literature and philosophy. And I want to start with a quote for you. This is from um, author Robert Louis Stevenson author of Kidnapped and other things. He says this, there are two things that men should never weary of, goodness and humility. We get none too much of them in this rough world among cold, proud people. It's certainly true, isn't it? We can't get enough goodness or humility in this world. And we see Jesus stepping from his world into our world today in the gospel text. Open up with me to Luke chapter 14. And you might not have noticed listening to it, but the way that the gospel text is listed, it actually starts with verse 1, but then jumps on to verse 7. So don't lose, don't lose your, fate, your, uh, your place there. Luke Chapter 14, verse 1, and then going to verse 7. Jesus is going through a town here, as he so often does, preaching and teaching. And one of the things that we have to look at as we look at this passage is the custom of the Pharisees or the town leaders in such a town at such a time. There were two things that the town leaders would do when a guest preacher if you will, came through. Um, they would go and listen, and they would entertain the person coming through. And these two things were done for a reason. First of all, they wanted to know who it was that was coming through their town. It would be kind of like if we invited a guest preacher here at um, Christ Church to speak, and Gene said, you can come and preach to us, but I want to have dinner with you along with the vestry. So that's essentially what's going on here, is that Jesus is the guest coming into the town. And the Pharisees have invited him to come and eat with them. It's also a thing of hospitality, particularly in the Middle East, that not only are you listening to what the person's saying, but you're welcoming them into your town. And so we see Jesus going to the Pharisee's house. And as Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house, he's going to teach them a little bit about the virtue of humility. So as we go through this text, I'd like you to pay attention to three different things. Number one, the virtue of humility is the opposite of pride. Number two, the virtue of humility opposes both vanity and small-mindedness, which are subsets of pride. And number three, humility is a gift and a virtue, meaning it's something given to us and it's something that we develop after it's been given. So look with me at verse 8. Jesus here is dealing with honor. 
and with humility. I'm sorry, look at with me at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, and he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. Hmm. And, he who, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you'll begin with shame and take the lowest place. So picture, if you will, they've invited Jesus to this dinner. And they don't have dinner like you and I have dinner. But rather, they form a circle around the center table where the wine and the food is. And they have this, they're, they're almost like laying there like a pinwheel on reclining couches. Okay, So they're laying down to eat. And their heads are all in the center either in a wheel or a square-like shape. We know this from other ancient sources. Um, some uh, of the Greek and the Roman historians talk about this symposium style. Okay, And it's to facilitate conversation. And part of the problem is if you're late to dinner or if you're not one of the good, honorable folks, guess what? There's no couch waiting for you, and so you have to sit on the outside outside of the circle. You all remember the story of um, Mary Magdalene, the sinful woman earlier in Luke, where she comes and she washes, Christ's, um, she washes Christ's feet with her tears and her hair? Did you ever scratch your head and wonder, what the heck is she doing at his feet? Well, the reason she could be at his feet is that his feet were outside on the outside of that pinwheel, and so she came up from the outside to wash his feet as he reclined. So that's what's going on here. And Jesus looks around, and Jesus sees that they're all jockeying for the right position, right? And so that's the context as Jesus tells this parable about the kingdom of God. They're jockeying for position. Who has the most honor? Who's going to be closest to the esteemed speaker? And Jesus criticizes them, doesn't he? Verse 8, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honor, lest someone dis more distinguished than you be invited by him. Now, he says wedding feast. They're not at a wedding feast. Tuck that in the back of your mind. That becomes important later in the text. Jesus first addresses the fact that if we're not humble, we sit down in the wrong place, and we're likely to be embarrassed. Notice what happens in verse 8. If you sit in a place of honor, then someone more distinguished than you is invited, and he who invited both you and the other person will say to you, give your place to this person, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. Not only have you dishonored the master of the house, but you've dishonored yourself because you don't have a right estimation of yourself. The fact is, friends, that our culture so often tells us all sorts of things and confuses us to the point that we don't have a right estimation of ourselves. We don't know where we stand. You know, I went and I taught at this camp for um, high school and college kids called St. Michael's Conference at the beginning of August. 
And one of the privileges I had was to sit down with 19 kids, freshmen and sophomore in high school, and go through C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters. Has anybody ever read that? Yeah? It's a great book. If you haven't, I suggest you read it. It's an easy read, but it's a deep read. And the first thing I said to them as I sat down, as I, and I said to them, you're not special, you're not unique, you're not going to change the world. Oof, you see their faces drop. You know, these kids have been coddled from day one, from infancy, thinking that they're, you know, the cat's meow. And so here's Father Templeton saying, yeah, you're nothing. But I said, I continued, that's actually not bad news. That's good news. Because it means that you're part of the human race. It means that you're part of a humanity that extends vastly beyond you and back into the past. So you can read C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters written in World War II and find that things apply to you. And we can read the gospel and find that things apply to our circumstances just as they applied to Jesus's. And yet, we're bred, and of course, inside of us as Christians, we know we always battle anyway, this self-absorption, this pride that we're steeped in. It separates us from God. It separates us from each other. It makes us morally vicious, morally viceful, and actually, it makes us quite useless in the kingdom of God. We have to go to a man called Aristotle in writing before Christ. And Aristotle dissects what it means to be vain and small-minded. So that's the second point. That pride has two faces, vanity and small-mindedness. Aristotle says this in the Nicomachean Ethics. Vain people are fools. They do not know themselves, and they show it openly. Then he goes to give an example. They take on honorable enterprises or tasks of which they're not worthy, and then they're found out. So what's that look like? It's the person that volunteers for things that has no business volunteering for them. The person that stands up and thinks equipped, but actually isn't. And what soon happens is they're exposed for who they actually are. That's vanity. Secondly, Aristotle says, they talk about their good fortune and the belief that it will bring them honor. This is the person that's always boasting about their school or their job or in the Christian world how much God has blessed them. Have you ever run into those types of folks? Yes, it can be clouded and disguised even in the Christian language. That too is vanity. They don't have a right estimation of themselves. Jesus, like Aristotle, here points out that vanity clouds our own perception, our self-perception, both in our standing before God and before men. Look at verse 10. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Is Jesus saying 
that we're supposed to go around on the extreme considering ourselves pond scum or lower? Is that what humility is? That's what lots of people think humility is, that it's being a doormat, that it's considering yourselves to be the lowest of the low and flattering other people. Some people think that, think that but that's not humility at all. You see, our world is, and our culture is cruel. It tells people that they're special, unique, can change the world, can do anything. And then guess what? It pulls the rug out from under them and says, ah, no, you can't. No, you can't. And you just didn't try hard enough. The other side of pride is what we used to call in ethics despondency. Despondency. Does anybody know? Heard that word? Know what that means? Yeah, okay. A few of you. Despondency. Despondency is what Aristotle calls in the Greek microsychia. Microsychia. It literally means to be small of soul, to be small of heart, to be small minded. You see, it's more deceptive than vanity. Vanity seems like pride, but Despondency also is pride. It's the other face. Aristotle says this, A man who falls short is small-minded. A small-minded man deprives himself of the good he deserves. What seems to be bad about him is due to the fact that he does not think he deserves good things and that he does not know himself. These people keep aloof even from noble actions and pursuits. Have you ever known someone to be small-minded? Have you ever been small-minded yourself? I think that if we're honest, we all struggle with both sides of pride at one time or another. But there's people that seem to depend and, and tend more towards one or the other. But the small-minded person is also trapped by his pride or her pride because he thinks him or herself to be in a situation that's unique. He thinks that he's the only one that's ever gone through this. He thinks that even God himself can't help me. Do you see where the pride comes in? Even God himself can't help me, says the despondent person. Jesus speaks to that pride in verse 11. He says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, humility is neither vanity nor small-mindedness, but it's a virtue that's in between. It's a self-awareness, a right estimation of where we are. And of course, for the Christian, that's a right estimation of who you are in Christ Jesus. Jesus doesn't use the word microsychia here, but rather he uses the word tapenao, which means to bring one's soul down from pride or to have a modest opinion of oneself. 
to humble oneself, to be humble, humility is not to think nothing of yourself, but to understand where you are and then try to strip pride away from that. It's a very different thing. Jesus instructs intentionally to take the lower position, not because we don't think ourselves worthy of any greater position, but so that we can be exalted to a higher position. Look, Jesus himself does this. He's God. Philippians tells us he did not um, consider it, um, I can't quote, quote it for you, but he did not, uh, he condescended to our level. He came down to our level to be crucified so that he could be exalted, that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the type of humility that Christ is instructing here. Aside from the table arrangements, what's Jesus talking about here? Do you remember when I told you to pay attention to the wedding feast reference? What's the wedding feast? What's the wedding feast? This is the little hook in the text that gives us exactly what Jesus is talking about. If you're familiar with the, with the Old Testament, you know, and the Pharisees certainly know, that in Isaiah, God talks about the end day, the final judgment, as a wedding feast, where God will dwell with man and man, man with God. We can, you see it in Revelation, too. What Jesus is saying to the Pharisees here, and to us, of course, by extension, is that you have all your priorities wrong. You're more concerned with where you sit at the table than the state of your soul. You think that it's more important to recline on the right couch to have the right friends than to have a just heart before God. And you, O oh Pharisees, should know better because you know the Old Testament and you know the law. Now it takes Aristotle, who understands self-perception here, a secular Greek, better than God's own people and the teachers of his law, the Pharisees. What does that say to us? I think it says the same thing, that so often we have a wrong self-perception, but not only do we have a wrong self-perception, we have wrong values. We think the things that are important are not important, and the things that are not important are important because we don't have proper humility. You see, the table, the wedding feast, is the last judgment. And at the last judgment, you and I will all give an account for the justice of our souls. Where do I get that from? Well, continue in the gospel. Verse 37. I'm sorry, that's wrong. Verse 12. He said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid, where? At the resurrection of the just. At the resurrection of the just. Of the just. The Pharisees should get this. They're the closest to Jesus' teaching. They believe God's word to be true. 
They value the traditions of God's people. They know the spiritual battle that goes on between angels and demons. They know that justice matters. They believe in a final judgment and a resurrection, and yet they're more concerned about being repaid here on this earth. His criticism to these Pharisees should strike home with us too. Where are you in the justice of your soul? Are you a humble person? Or are you a vain person? Or are you a small-minded person? Are you a vain person touting yourself and your accomplishments? Are you showy? Are your connections, the clubs that you belong to, the social circles that you operate in, the tasks that you've been assigned to, things that give you value? You might be a vain person. Are you a small-minded person? Perhaps you're on that other side. Are you despondent? Are you continually doubting yourself? Are you taking to heart everything that people around you say, valuing what those around you say more than what God says? Are you not participating in the kingdom of God because you lack ambition, because you fear failure? Do you feel like you don't deserve things, good things, the good gifts that God gives to us deep down? You might be a small-minded person. Humility combats both of those, both vanity and small-mindedness, because true humility combats pride. That's the cure that Jesus gives to us. And in the end, humility is both something to pray for and to work out. It's both a gift of God and it's a virtue, which means it's something that only God can give to you to develop. St. Thomas Aquinas, writing in the uh, medieval period, says this in his Summa Theologica. He says of humility, man arrives at humility in two ways. First and chiefly, by a gift of grace. And in this way, the inner man precedes the outward man. What does he mean by that? It's given as a gift. And in inner man precedes the outward man. It means, as St. Paul says in Romans, that our nature is changed when we become Christians. It means that part of that changed nature is taking on the gift of humility that's given to us. He goes on. The other way is by human effort, whereby he first of all restrains the outward man and afterwards succeeds in plucking out the inward root. What's that? Well, it's what Peter writes to the church when he talks about supplement, supplementing our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. It means that as that grace is given, we develop it, that we grab hold of it, that we try to practice it and hone it. What can we do as Christians to be more humble, to be Human, uh, to be humble people embracing the humility of Christ? Well, number one, and we so often miss this, we ask for it. We need to ask for it. We need to pray for it. We need to long for it. We need to see it as a characteristic of Christ that only the Holy Spirit can give to us. 
But number two, and I think this is so often where Christians get confused, we can develop it. Once it's given to us, we can use it, utilize it, develop it, see it, try to gain self-perception for where we are. You see, both the vain person and the humble, and the, rather, the vain person and the small-minded person miss the fact of who they are. It's that Hebrews passage so rightly tells us. We are in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 13, verse 5, uh, verse 6 says this. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's the model of humility that Jesus gives us. And it's that for which we should pray and that which we develop in our walk. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.